Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome all to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Pleased to be joined today by my longtime friend, Dennis Santos, who is CIO of Okabina Investment Services, a multifamily office in the Twin Cities. Thanks for joining me, Dennis. Thank you for having me, Chaz. One of the things that I'd like to talk about is the interesting move and the difference between your last two employers. So you were effectively running manager search um, asset allocation and had a senior investment role at GE. And then when it was bought by State Street, you came under the confines of a large global bank. Okabina, as I recall, was a single family office, came out of the Dayton Hudson family, I believe, and then morphed from there. So the differences between working for SSGA and Okabina and what Okabina has evolved into today, I think would be very interesting to our audience. Great. Yeah, SSGA, Global Bank, a GCFI, known as a systemically important financial institution, and the third or fourth largest investment manager in the world, depending on the day. It's tied with Fidelity. You know, it's a great organization that touches every aspect of the globe. It opens doors for you. The name alone gets you in the searches. But what SSGA does well is indexing. At the certain scale that they've gotten to, indexing really becomes your only option in a lot of investment areas. So as we grew the business with the merger from GE Asset Management, um, we started in 2016 at the merger with about $64 billion in assets. And through some luck and through some skill, we were able to grow that business to about $160 billion in assets. But as you grow, you stop being able to work with some of the investment managers that you really love, or you can only take very modest positions in those investment managers. There was one great, deeper value-oriented emerging market manager that I like very much based in London. And I was only able to get a 36 basis point position across our client portfolios. And while I think they're going to add a lot of value, regardless of what they do, it's just not going to be enough to impact outcomes for clients at State Street. So when I was thinking about you know, what I wanted to do next, I'd always wanted to work for a family office. Um, in fact, years ago, I remember uh, writing down career goals and being the chief investment officer for family office was that career goal. Um, so I started having conversations with Okabina well over a year ago at this point. And we really shared a very similar investment philosophy. I've always said the best way to serve our clients is to win by not losing. So protect capital. When the market gets rough, protect client assets. And that's a, the same philosophy they shared. So as we got to know each other, I realized that there were a lot of similar investment strategies in their portfolio that I had at State Street, ones I really liked and ones I could have a meaningful allocation to. And that resonated with me. And I think my investment philosophy resonated with the team there. Um, so we were able to make that work. But to your point, going from a very large organization where just our OCIO platform had 120 employees to an organization that has 31 total employees is a big shift. Um, a great shift, by the way, because you get to do a lot more. At State Street, eventually your role becomes very siloed and you have your tasks and you farm out everything else to other people. So you don't really get to touch every aspect of the investment process anymore, like we did at GE. At GE, we were a team of seven running the entire pension, uh, which was great and very hands-on, very exciting, 
very intense and you have to do a lot and stay very focused where, you know, at State Street, you have tons of support for all sorts of things. Um, here, it goes back to being very focused. You get to get your hands dirty. You get to play a role in all aspects of the process. I love that. I find it very motivating. And the people I work with and work for are just wonderful. So it's been a great transition over. Well, it, it really is quite different. And one of the things that I kidded you about was moving to the Twin Cities. And I said, Dennis, you really know what a Twin Cities winner is like? And you seem to have embraced it. I certainly am learning what it's like. Um, I love the snow. I like the cold. So, so far it hasn't been bad. Uh, we've had a couple of snowstorms, but nothing, nothing too crazy yet. In fact, the day I was out here looking for houses, it was minus 30 with the wind chill. It was the weekend that Texas had that big freeze. So up here, you know, close to Canada, it was really, really cold. And, you know, they didn't dump me. I looked at 30 houses that weekend, found one to buy and moved in and everything's been great since. We should note that you have also mastered the Skywalk, which perhaps yes. has made it a little more livable. You never have to be outside in Minnesota if you don't want to be. Exactly. Let's move on, Dennis, and talk a little bit about what you're looking for now from an investment perspective. What types of strategies, managers, products are you most interested in now and in the near term? So good question. I think to round out our book, we'd like to see someone really strong in the life sciences space. Um, in our hedge fund portfolio, we have a lot of technology, as you would expect. We have event-driven, we have global macro. I think we're a little light on life sciences in the hedge fund area. So that's, in, that's somewhere that we'll be active in over the next few months. We think it's additive. It's had a terrible year. Uh, most life sciences managers, biotech, anything in that small cap range has really struggled throughout the year. Um, so we feel it's a good entry point to get into that space in the market. Um, and, you know, it's not an area that's going away. In fact, in terms of creative destruction, that and technology are the two largest. So finding someone that's a specialist that we feel executes well um, should bode well for returns over the coming quarters and years. Um, that's an area that we're very active in currently. We're looking for a complementary low net strategy, maybe event driven along those lines, something that's going to not be correlated to a lot of other strategies in our portfolio. Um, that's always a the important part as you build out a portfolio, the fine tuning is always the hardest. When you know, you're looking for international equities, you have a broad mandate and can hire lots of investment managers. And as that portfolio gets more narrow and you fill it up, then you're just fine tuning around the edges. Um, along the international side, we're looking for something that's very high quality, that has a lot of defensive characteristics. Um, that's something that we'll add to over the coming quarters as well. Um, those are three areas that we're very active in. In terms of fixed income, we're not active at all. Uh, we've wound that down in the portfolio. There's very little municipal exposure left. There's no yields. There's not a great reason to be in it. And as the yield curve flattens and short rates increase, you know, you're, you're probably going to have a bear market for fixed income for at least a few quarters, if not longer. Yeah, that's been the sentiment of many chief investment officers and uh, other investment folks that we've chatted with. Dennis, let's talk a little bit about the origins of Okabina and going back to the Dayton family and the Dayton Hudson Corporation, which many of us more senior investment folk will remember, but perhaps not all are familiar with the origins of uh, Okabina and the Dayton Hudson Corp. So Okabina was started when the Dayton Hudson Corporation went public back in 1967. But rewinding a little bit further, the Dayton family came from New York City 
much earlier than that in terms of banking and settled in Worthington, Minnesota. And Worthington, Minnesota is right on the shores of Lake Okavina, which is where the name comes from. It's also the Lakota word for where herons nest. Um, so a bit of a Native American tradition back there. And if you're in our office, you see lots of heron pictures um, all throughout the office, as well as, as lots of memorabilia from Dayton's, um, the large department store directly across the street from our office. And that since is underground, now it's an office building, um, but it still is there and still part of the history of Minneapolis. So over the years, Dayton Hudson or Dayton's became a very large department store, continued to expand and blossom, and then open up other department stores outside of Minneapolis, starting to grow, starting to build out that national footprint. Um, Dayton's was also the first really indoor mall in Southdale, Minnesota, the Southdale Mall, um, just you know, a few miles south of Minneapolis. And that's also one of the legacies that trace back to the Dayton family um, is the creation of the indoor mall. Um, although Amazon is displacing some of those these days, um, that's where the first one started right here in Minnesota. And as that company grew, five brothers inherited the company and took it public in 1967 to create capital to continue growing it. And they had the vision that they wanted to create generational wealth transfer for their families, not just for their kids or their grandkids, but really in perpetuity. So when they took the company public, they used those proceeds to start Okabita Investment Services. And since then, we have been serving the Dayton family um, for 54 years. And about seven years ago, we opened it up to other institutional clients, as well as high net worth taxable clients. And we have taken on a few other families. So we are now a multifamily office and continue to grow our business and grow our assets that way. Okay. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about glue and connectivity and what you think really binds key investment professionals to their business and what gives you comfort. As you know, in the Rosemont model, we put a huge emphasis on employee ownership and having thoughtful, uh, reasonably widely spread employee owners across all the senior functions of the firm and all the key folk. But there are other ways to affect strong bonds and feel like you've got appropriate skin in the game and strong alignment. And those often are expressed by having significant capital in your strategies or products, or having a phantom equity plan or a compensation architecture, which really speaks to this issue. For you, Dennis, what's what are kind of the key issues and things that you look for to create alignment and glue with the investment teams you work with? So I love to see widespread employee ownership. I think that's number one. Everyone has skin in the game. They benefit from the success of the firm. They have a long-term incentive. So no one is just trying to raise assets for one quarter or for one year. We're trying to maximize performance to hit an incentive, get paid out, and then leave to another firm. These are employees that are in it for the long haul. They all work together. They all rise together. There's a lot of camaraderie that gets created from having widespread employee ownership. Now, not every firm can do that. So whether it's a publicly traded company or a firm that may have a founder who just can't transition ownership out, there are other ways to create that glue to get teams to stick together. Investing in one strategy is certainly one way to do that. We love to see investors who are investing alongside of us because then they're going to make prudent decisions with their capital. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean the team will stick together, but it certainly gives us a lot of comfort that they're going to make the right decisions for what's in the fund. Rather than take on too much risk or take on too many assets, they're going to be prudent stewards of that capital because it's their own. Um, the other thing really comes down to culture. And that's where we love to do on-site visits and spend a whole day with the team. Sometimes we'll spend multiple days over multiple meetings, get to know them and get to see how the teams work together. Is there a culture of mutual respect? Is it a very strong PM that doesn't listen to his analysts or her analysts? Is it you know, one leader that everyone follows sort of blindly? And that's not necessarily a bad culture. Um, I think you know, there's a good example of a fixed income manager on the West Coast that had a leader who left a large firm and took 50 people with him and has been incredibly successful because he is this magnanimous, bigger than life character. And you talk to him and you're inspired. So it's not really the wrong way to do it. It's just understanding what that culture is. Does it work? Do people like being there? Do you see them being there for the long haul? And that's really important. That will keep a team together. It will keep a team together when the chips are down. Every cycle has pronounced performance patterns. Every strategy is going to be up. And then sometimes they're going to be down. And when they're down, you're losing clients, performance is weak, bonuses are down. That's when people have a tendency to start leaving. And if you have a strong culture, people are in it together, you're going to get through those periods intact. And that is important. That's what we want to see in an investment strategy. Well, it's ironic we're having this conversation because earlier today I was talking with a senior marketer in the industry and he was looking for another job and he's worked for quite a few large, global, successful businesses and he works, he has worked for a few smaller boutiques. But as I looked at his resume, I realized that he'd had 10 positions with 10 different firms over the last 30 years. And as we talked about why he moved around so much, one of the key reasons was um, that the teams for whom he worked were splintering that uh, beyond anything he could have known uh, within a year or two or three of his arrival, the teams that he worked for and a lot of the investment engine that he represented left. It was recruited away. It was acquired away. It was disbanded in some form. So there's so much movement in the business and that has given the specialist recruiters much to do. But when you are analyzing new investments and people have made it through your rather comprehensive due diligence, and you're trying to figure out, is this a group that I really think is going to be there for some time and has got the stickiness um, and the, the likelihood that I won't have to be constantly worried or worried much at all about whether or not uh, they are likely to disband or fracture in some way. Is there anything else that you would apply to that thought or that, that worry? No, it comes down to that qualitative assessment. I mean, meeting with them, getting to see them, ideally getting to see them socially, how they interact, maybe at a lunch, at a dinner, outside of the office. It's really easy for an investment team to have that polished meeting and those pitch calls they rehearse those. A lot of them will bring in outside consultants to make sure they're perfect. But it's really more of a challenge when you know, you're trying to order a salad and have a, an iced tea and get questions from both sides of you to stay on that message as well as you do it in a very formal meeting setting. So that is always something that we try to incorporate as we get further down the due diligence process. 
is this a team that we're going to want to deal with regularly? Do we like the personalities? Because that's important, right? If we're looking for a long-term partnership, you're going to talk to these people frequently for the next several years. Um, so hopefully you like them. But also, you know, gives you a chance to catch people unguardedly and to really get that accurate depiction of how they view the firm, how they view their role in the firm, and do they sound like they're going to stick around for a while. And you'll be surprised. I've had many of those meetings where people have told me in confidence, like, hey, I'm looking for this. You know, if you hear anyone looking for a great small account manager, talk to me. And you're like, oh, well, we're certainly not going to invest now, but thanks for the salad. Oh, <laughs> it's so true. And, you know, these days with the work from home and the hybrid environments and, and potentially the onslaught of yet another wave of COVID, uh, being able to see people out of the office and being able to catch people, I think, in a more unguarded state and just talk to them more naturally without, quote, all the marketing spin and the and the pomp and circumstance that sometimes comes with a, quote, formal meeting, office meeting. Um, I think that's helpful to your point. I also think it's helpful. One of the things we try to do is really pay attention to how the senior most people treat the junior most people just how they treat each other in the office, how they refer to them, how they speak to them, um, how communication flows. Uh, we've gotten some good warning signals uh, in, in watching conversations like that to just, it's been pretty clear at times that there's just not a lot of respect up and down the organization. I think what you're talking about really gets to that as well. It does, it does, it's critical because those young people are the ones that often do the bulk of the work. <laughs> and if they don't like what they're doing or who they're working for, they're going to leave and it creates those gaps. Well, this has been very helpful, Dennis. I'm really glad you were able to join us today and look forward to visiting you in the Twin Cities when it's not 30 below. I look forward to it as well, Chaz. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dennis.